Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, and he's in my home, Stephen Cap Perry. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you, Richard. I'm glad to see where you actually live. I've had all these pictures in my head. Stephen is someone I've admired, and he's been open about his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint. He'll talk about that, but he's also been contributing significantly in our community for a long time, and that's how I became aware of him and his family. And now to have him in um, our home, I'm a little bit of a fanboy to have Stephen Cap Perry and his wife is here, Joanne. She's in the building, as we'd say. Um, this is Steve sharing his story, but she's here for support. What I'll do as far as organization is I'll read Steve's bio. And Steve will then tell his story as an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint. He will then talk about a tour he's doing. He's a tour director for Murdoch Travel. Is tour director the right vocabulary? Yeah, that's a good term. And he is doing a tour in March. It's um, for LGBTQ folk, families, and friends. So it's the first of its kind. We'll link to that in the show notes, but Steve will talk about that. And then he'll talk about other things on how we can do better to support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. I think our, our joint prayer is if you're an ally wanting to do better in this space, I think you'll learn some stuff from Steve. And if you're LGBTQ looking for principle-based ideas in your life on how to move forward, I think this podcast will help you. So uh, let me read Steve's bio. Steve was born in Monterey, California and grew up in Indiana and Utah. He and his wife live in Provo, Utah. He is a songwriter, playwright, and broadcaster. You can hear him middays on Classic89.org hosting classical music. Steve is the host of In Good Faith podcast, speaking to people of all different faiths, sharing their experiences of seeing how God works in their lives. Musically, Steve is best known for his musical presentation, From Camorra Hill, a work for soloist, readers, choir, and orchestra. Steve is a freelance tour guide for Morris Murdoch Escorted Tours and takes groups every year to Israel, and he's done over about 15, so this will be um, about tour number 17 that we're going to be talking about. This March, he's organized a private tour called In the Footsteps of Jesus for LGBTQ folks and their allies, families, and friends, and we'll talk about that more in the podcast. He met his wife, Joanne Perry, at BYU, where they were in a performing group together. Joanne graduated with honors in the music, dance, theater, and is a drama teacher at a private school. Steve and Joanne have been married for 34 years and have a daughter and three sons and two little granddaughters who are toddlers. Uh, is that okay, Steve? Yeah, that's great. Um, you might tell our listeners what you do professionally, where you work, and how that fits into some of the things we've just described. Yeah, so I work at BYU Broadcasting, and within BYU Broadcasting are two different radio stations. I'm on Classical 89 during the middays, and then for BYU Radio, that's who I do the podcast for, In Good Faith. That's also on Sirius XM 143 if people want to listen nationally, or you can subscribe to In Good Faith wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so we have a podcast host in the in the house today, and somebody's used to being behind a mic for a long time. Tell us, is BYU Broadcasting, are you a BYU employee, and, and if so, how many people work there? Just because you're the first person I've actually talked to that works at yeah. BYU Broadcasting. Yes, so we are employees at BYU. The broadcast building is just east of the Marriott Center, and there's a close to 300 people that work there. There's television producers, there's radio producers, and all kinds of other staff, and lots of students who I think these are the best jobs on campus, if you can get one of them, to be a producer for podcast or TV. You learn a lot and you have fun. It beats getting up at three to clean the Richards Building toilets or whatever the other optional jobs are. That is great. Um, thanks for all the wonderful content you're creating in so many spaces. Tell us a little bit about your story. At this point, I usually just, you know, turn it over to my guests to tell their story. Probably the question people ask me the most is, are you related to, and it's either Ardeth Cap or Janice Cap Perry or Ardeth Cap Perry or Jan, anyway. There's different versions. People get a little mixed up. So Janice Cap Perry is my mother, and the whole name thing is Janice Cap married Doug Perry. She became Janice Cap Perry. I was the oldest kid. I got both names. It's not hyphenated. My last name is Perry, and that's what I most often get asked. And I love that she's my mom and being related to her. Um, it's been fun. 
a lot of fun things happen. Briefly tell us about your mom and if people aren't aware of what she's done in our community. And she's alive. I think your dad's passed away. But tell us a little bit about your mom. Yeah, she's 84. She still does some writing every day. She's learned, had to pace herself after a couple of strokes. But she's best known for a lot of work for young women, especially music. There are 10 different primary songs in the primary songbook that Ten are hers. different songs in the primary Love book. Love is Spoken Here, Armies of Helaman, a bunch of others in there. That is great. So it was really fun to not only see her writing, but I started singing at age 16, which is when she started writing. She'd just been an athlete before that ladies' fast pitch. But I just remember being in the house, and I remember one time she said, listen to this, does this work? And she played this little song, Sing Through It. So I guess I was the first person to ever sing I'm Trying to Be Like Jesus. As I looked at the pencil copy over her shoulder, I said, I think it's okay. Sounds okay to me. Boy, what a priceless <laughs> moment in our community to see a penciled copy of that song. Yeah, she's done a lot of good things. Keep sharing your story, Steve. It's always hard to know where to start, so I'll mm-hmm. just start someplace with really the reason I'm here, and then you can ask if you want to go back and delve into ancient history. A few years ago... I just had this really strong prompting that I needed to start coming out to people. So I started slowly with some people I work with, with family members, with... Now, Joanne had known for over 30 years, but it was kind of irrelevant. Maybe I should say, our story is our story, and we don't recommend that anyone else do what we did. And we certainly don't want to be poster children for mixed orientation marriages, because that can be a huge mistake for some people. We maybe consider ourselves lucky survivors of what we did not know we were getting ourselves into. Uh, We had been friends for years at BYU, then best friends, tried dating, didn't really work out. And then it did work out the next time. I don't know how God did it. She's the only woman that I've ever had feelings for. I think he just said, we've got to help this guy out. I don't know why, but we fell in love. We got married for love. I wasn't talking myself into it like this is on the checklist. It was, I want to do this more than anything else in the world. And so when people say, how do you make it work? We don't know. I mean, we can recommend kindness and friendship and also whatever else God threw into the mix. I was pretty naive. I think we thought, oh, well, I'm in love. I guess I finally grew up. I'm a late bloomer. And then found out that as real as that love was, that my lifelong orientation hadn't changed, which I had always been aware of just from a very early age. I hear this all the time, both on your podcast and others, when that people knew at very, very young ages, even before I had words, I knew that I was different from my friends. And then later, because the way it was talked about in the time I was growing up, which is so much different than it is now, I just heard really bad words about people who were LGBT. I mean, no one used those acronyms. And I thought, oh, those sound like terrible people. Well, clearly I'm not one of them, so I'm something else. What am I? I think it's easy when something's too hard to deal with to somehow just not know it. And I, that's what I mostly did until it just, over my life, I, I came to just accept, you know, this is a real thing. You're doing great, and you're very brave. I just You're kind anybody... to say that, but sometimes <laughs> it's not brave to do the only thing there is to do. It wasn't right to be out, or it just seemed irrelevant. We were busy raising kids. We have a, a daughter, three boys, and we were just busy, and... But at a certain point a few years ago, I actually started having panic attacks, which I'd never had. Talk about that. It was only at church we figured out. I'd be in high priest meeting, or then I was in bishopric meeting, and I just had this rush of agitation, and I knew my body was standing up and leaving the room, and I didn't know why. But I had to get out of there, and i just have to go outside, loosen my tie, just breathe. And in talking with a therapist and talking with Joanne, it was just this box, you know, you can keep stuff suppressed and not even be consciously thinking about it, but it's all there. And it was just this change where suddenly something had to change. This box was getting smaller and smaller. I was getting depressed to the point of wishing I would not wake up every morning. And it was just going in a bad direction. 
And so talking with Joanne, um, it was like, well, then maybe you can just step out of that box. And it kind of was the only choice, really. So uh, it's kind to say we're brave. We just did what seemed the only thing we could do. I needed somebody in every part. I, so we picked some families at church to come out to that, that we loved. We knew they loved us. I pulled my coworkers, and they were all uniformly fabulous. I had great support at BYU Broadcasting. I started with the director at the time, Michael Dunn, said, so here's this other news about me that you don't need to know, but I need to know that you know it and that we're okay. I love the way you frame that up. Because really strong in my mind were a couple of phrases. One is that you can never know you are truly loved until you share who you truly are. Wow. And for so many people, when people praise them for good things they do, they often are thinking, yeah, but you don't know me. You wouldn't say that if you knew who I was. So even if though you know someone's going to be supportive, you think you know until you actually talk to them, you don't know. But then when you find out that they still love you and everything's fine, then you actually know. Um, talk about the panic attacks. It sounds like you were aware of, of the panic attack. And you, I love the vocabulary. You just found yourself outside the room. Yeah, it was like it was I like had no choice. It was going to happen. And at the time, you weren't connecting the dots with the panic attack. You just knew this was what vocabulary. If I talked to you that day, the panic attack. I was, said that I just have this tightness in my chest. I can hardly breathe, and I can't be here. I don't know why, but I cannot be here. And so in talking— And what if I had asked questions? Is this a testimony issue, Steve, or something else you don't fully understand? No, it's like, what's going on? Okay. And in talking with a counselor, I mean, there are things that— there's sometimes something really traumatic will happen, and someone will have PTSD, something will trigger, and they feel like they're back there. For me, I mean, there are surveys that say over 80% of LGBTQ people in the church have some form of PTSD just from going to church and hearing things differently than everybody else in the room and hearing yourself called an attack on the family. And when I grew up, the words were abomination, crime against nature, pervert, all of these things. I mean, this is from the prophet of the church. And at the time, I think a couple of things saved me. I remember reading The Miracle of Forgiveness at 16 or 17, coming to chapter 6, and I think God knew I wouldn't make it without knowing this. I read that chapter that blames it all on you or your parents and bad choices, and if you haven't bloodied the door with your knuckles for enough years, you haven't done your part and all that. And I was reading those terrible words, and I just had this knowledge in my mind which I now call revelation, I didn't know what to call it, which was, he doesn't understand, and this is not you. So I have had this really great blessing of never thinking anything was wrong with me. But I have talked to so many men, and increasingly women, in various groups, support groups, who took on every one of those words as their self-definition, that they were a bad person, that they were evil, that they were, and then prayed to be fixed. So then a lot of those folks, the logical conclusion is, well, the atonement doesn't work for me. And that's not true. I love how David Archuleta phrased it when he said he felt this answer from God. He said, David, you have to stop asking me this. I made you how you are. So just started coming out to people. I helped organize with the BYU Office of Inclusion at the time an event for students at BYU Broadcasting and with another guy there who, who was out and had also gone and said, help me do something. So we had a student panel. Two of the students were out and worked in the building, and they asked my friend and I to share our stories at the beginning. So I'm basically out to the whole building. So we just haven't had any big announcement like on Facebook. Too many of those we saw were actually also divorce announcements, which sometimes is the best thing, but it wasn't what was happening for us. I love your story so far, and I just, every story is different, listeners, and I think Steve and I hope is that you'll take parts of his story, not write your own story, but use the principles to write your own story the way, I mean, I mean, don't write your story the way Steve is writing his story, unless you feel impressed to do it that way. I love the personal revelation you got in the middle of reading chapter six of that book and recognize that how your heavenly parents felt about you. 
and you being protected around that, what was said there. And I'll probably think about that for a lot because I just think that at times people that we love and support in our lives and sustain leaders, parents are just not completely informed and bring their, this is the way I reconcile, bring their worldview or their cultural feelings into their voice. And I think there's probably no malice intended, <laughs> but I think over time those very voices would change as they learn. So that's the way I frame it up. So I think that's creating a nuance there where Steve got personal revelation protecting him from those words. Um, maybe not everybody did, as you pointed out, but you got some. Well, and that's not to say I'm inspired and Elder Kimball wasn't, but sometimes you get the information you need individually. It's like both Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks have talked. I think Elder Oaks most recently is saying, I'm a general authority. I'm giving general counsel. Don't write me a letter telling me why you're the exception. You know if you're the exception. Yeah. That's a paraphrase, that last line. But yeah. So, yeah, I just held on to that. I'm really grateful that, I mean, there was shame growing up, but I didn't have the shame thinking, I am bad. And that is the worst shame, and it really, you've brought this up so many times, it separates you from God. I knew that I was okay somehow, but I also knew this was not a safe thing to bring up with anyone else. I talked to my sister about this when I was uh, becoming more public. I sort of warned my brothers and my sister, like, in case anyone asks, just say, yep, we know. She called me back after we talked one night the next day, and she said, I think I just got it. You don't struggle with your attraction. You struggle with how you're treated because of it and how the church talks about it. I said, yes, you get it. I don't struggle with it. In fact, it's easy (laughs) because it's just sort of how I'm made. But that's the point. Uh, And that's why I like people to be able to be self-defining. If someone wants to use SSA, same-sex attraction, I will be glad to address them that way. For, for me, that felt like, I don't know, a rash. And if they just found the right cream, we could, we could fix that up for you. And I never felt that way. I love this idea of grace, that everybody that's in the community gives grace to everybody else in the community, walking the road, taking on the labels or no mm. labels, being yeah. out, not out. Out broadly, out limitedly, I, the more I, stories I hear, the more I think that's the best approach. And allies supporting every LGBTQ person in the way they want to walk this road versus projecting. And ser- and I love what you're doing for other queer Latter-day Saints. If that's a label you're okay with, just yeah. creating space for them to walk this road the way best they can. And it's nice to look back and see change. That's one yeah, advantage us older gentlemen <laughs> as my daughter, not very politically correctly, calls me, is to have seen change in my lifetime. Every time I walk into the Wilkinson Center, first of all, I cringe just a little bit because Ernest Wilkinson, the year before I was born, maybe I shouldn't use his name, but anyway, his name's on the building. I I think you're fine. Yeah, he gave a speech saying, if there are any of you homosexuals here on campus, we want you to be honest enough to tell us. We'll give you your money back and send you on your way, but we don't want you here to contaminate the rest of us. I mean, this is just how people talked. Now I walk into the Wilkinson Center, and they've just put in the Office of Belonging in that center. And I don't know. I see that as a little bit of a sign of progress in that same, <laughs> that same name. Also, in my lifetime, when I was in my 40s, I mean, we all have hard times in our lives, easier times, harder times. I was going through a time when I was really trying to get to know God. So I had had this thought when I was talking to a bishop, and I mentioned at the time, I said that I have same-sex attraction, just sort of almost as an afterthought, like here's a thing that might be useful for him to know. And he panicked. He'd never met anyone or known anyone who was LGBTQ and quickly called the state president. I was in the young men's presidency. They instantly released me. Wow. Because, I mean, the assumption, which is really terrible, is, oh, they're not safe around kids. I had my three boys in that young men's program, you know, pre-stage teacher and deacon. And that was a, that was a low blow. Misinformed, they're sweet men. I respect them. When I see them, I give them a hug. 
they also have told me they learned a lot from our experience together. But knowing that, that people were thinking of me that way if I mentioned my orientation, that triggered some really heavy depression during that time. But the progress is that it's talked about more. The next bishop, I mentioned it to, three months later called me to be his counselor. And then when I was on the high council, I mentioned it to my state president, and he said, oh, we're so lucky to have your experience on our high council. We really need it. And then our most recent move, and I mean, you're not supposed to talk about church callings, but it's part of the story, which is we moved three or four months ago, and first Sunday got our temple recommend, came out to the bishop that week, came out to the stake presidency member, and the next week I was called to be in the elders quorum presidency. So I don't know what's going on, but none of those folks seemed, it didn't seem to matter to them. And that's kind of encouraging to me to see bits of change like that. A low blow is softer vocabulary than I'd use. <laughs> this is a family podcast, Richard. <laughs> um, I just, I'm sorry that happened. I've been a father of young men, still am a father of now adult young men, and had the chance to serve with them in young men's and go on scout camps together yep. and all the things and for you to be vulnerable and honest and then separated from your boys and then because you were somehow unsafe for the other boys, I'm just, that is incredibly painful. And I, I admire you working through that. Um, I don't know how you worked through that and just didn't leave the church and anger and bitter and brought your whole family with you and and the things you've read and some of the things you've said. When I hear things from the past that our leaders have said, listeners, my gut reaction used to be just to defend the leader because um, that's what we do as Latter-day Saints. But now my reaction is just to sit with somebody in the pain and do, and I can yeah. not sell out my leader to do that. I can just sit with someone in their difficult, painful experience. And that's what my baptism covenants call me to do is sit with their pain, acknowledge their pain. But I just did, and I, it sounds like you've kept a relationship with, with some of these people that released you yeah, they weren't. Amends. They weren't. Be, there was no malice. They were th- doing what they thought was the obvious thing, which to me was incredibly wrong and a misunderstanding. But you know, you have no power in that situation. What's decided is decided. So you just move on. Yeah, that was that was a difficult time. I did learn some good things, and I became a lot closer to the Lord. And people don't always like this language. But it made me be sure that my connection was to Jesus and not to the earthly institution, because that's the connection that has actual saving power. And if you're in a difficult place, and the church can put you in a difficult place, again, self-determination. I know some people who felt like for their mental health and to save their lives, they had to step back. I honor that. I think we need to honor each other and not say, well, you're, you're lazy, you're looking for an excuse to sin, whatever it might be. For me, I, I did what I felt was the right thing. And I think what happened to me during that time, I mean, I sort of went overboard <laughs> because I was self-employed. I would spend an hour reading the scriptures, and I would write down the ones that touched me, and I would sit and listen, like, what does God want me to know about this? And I thought, if I'm sitting here with a pen in hand, is he going to ignore me? Is he going to tell me something? And, you know, I sat there for over a year every day without anything to write, wondering, how come God seems to talk to other people so easily and not me? But we each have our own ways that the, the Spirit talks to us. And for me, during that time of study, I felt like I made a connection with Jesus Christ that I don't know how to describe a born-again experience. Some people have these dramatic experiences. But what happened to me was I felt that that relationship, a part of him got put into my heart. And that when I hear his name, when we sing and we sing his name, there is this little something, even if I'm not really paying attention, there's this little thing that almost leaps up and recognizes itself. And I think I belong to him. And that part of him he put in my heart response to that. And that's my strength, that's my anchor, and that's my solid ground to stand on. It's really helpful. I love just 
how you navigated that. I love that you recognize Jesus doesn't feel this way and you just, I sent you had a great relationship with Jesus, but you just spent this time to sort of rebuild that and separated the pain the institutional church can bring into our lives and its role to point mm. us to Christ. And I think that's very sustainable for people that are looking for a way to send sustained and work through the difficult experiences, have a fundamental testimony mm. of the restored gospel, but have painful experiences along the way, straight or not straight. And I should mention that as soon as I started coming out to people, those panic attacks were gone. It was all from, I just needed to be able to show up as me. And so I have, if we hire new students, I say, hey, do you have a moment? Step in my office. Here's some information I'd like to share. And it's that same thing. You don't need to know it, but I need to know that you know and that we're good. And thank you. And then I often instruct people on how to respond. I said, and thank you for being the kind of person that I could feel comfortable saying this to, which tells them, don't say something uncomfortable. <laughs> I love and, the way you just normalize this, Steve. Well, we have to. The other words that popped into my mind were representation and visibility. No one in our generation grew up knowing something who was out LGBTQ and was an active member of the church. I never saw anybody. So the assumption is that can't happen. Today that's happening more and more. I sometimes hear people say, well, why do you have to even tell me this? Some of us have to so we can stay alive because we need to be known as who we are. And as I said, you never know you're truly loved until you share who you truly are. It is necessary. And so if people do listen, they're not trying to cram stuff down their, your throat. They're just trying to share their reality, which you may not have been aware of before. And we all need to learn to be aware of each other's the ins and outs of our lives. I love, you have this long view. I mean, I'm aware of that, that statement from President Wilkinson, and I'm aware of President Kimball, and I'm aware, and this story of you being released as coming out, and now where we are today, there's an office belonging in the Wilkinson Center. But I'm also touched by these priesthood leaders that saw you as a fellow equal and actually saw you as somebody that could help us in a way that, would help us create the, you're an answer to prayer, would be my guess. You don't probably want to say that, but <laughs> I wonder if you are an answer to prayer as they're praying for who could be on my head council, who would be in the bishopric. We're trying to create a space here in our ward or our stake where people feel welcome. Maybe they thought, we need better music. We need better parties. <laughs> I don't know. Those are the stereotypes. I had, um, I don't want to shift gears on another story, but a, a fellow sent me a message from Europe and he's been a clerk, which is a noble wonderful calling as a celibate gay Latter-day Saint for a long time. A stick presidency change happened, and the stick president said, would you be a high counselor? Mm. And he told me how much that meant to him, and he says, I want you to talk about your experience. We're at a point in our stake where we need you to talk about your experience as we're creating Zion. Zion includes your voice, gifts, and attributes in your experience, and I just sense how helpful and healing that was for him. Um... And clerks are good, and high counselors are good. I'm not trying to rank one or the other, but um, for him to then have that platform as a high counselor to share his experience, I thought was just terrific. Keep sharing your story. You're in a letter here, and you're kind of going through parts of the letter. I want you to continue to share everything in this letter as well as other thoughts. Well, I thought I'd mention that we really need to know that it's not an us and them situation. If you're in Relief Society, if you're in Quorum or Sunday School, and people say, well, the gay is this, or the... And bless his heart, in uh, in my current quorum the other day, someone said, well, my sister is L-T, you know, all the letters. And I thought, okay, well, good for him. He's never even said it out loud, clearly, but he's trying to. And so kudos, <laughs> kudos for that. Just remember BLT and add some guacamole, and that's the G, so LGBT. It's not us versus them. Every time you speak or teach a lesson in your quorum, more than half of the adults are single, on average, in your church, so you should be aware of the single people. You are safe to assume 5 to 7% of the people in your young men, young women, elders quorum, relief society are somewhere LGBTQ on that scale. And some people say, oh, we don't have anyone like that in my ward. It's like, well, that's because you're not safe for them to be out to. Because 
They are. A recent survey at BYU, 13% of the responding students, and this was in the thousands, said they're something other than completely straight. And so, having just one accepting adult reduces the rate of suicide by some huge factor. I'm sorry, I don't have the survey with me. 13%. Mm-hmm. And that was a two years ago survey, I believe. So that's a survey, obviously, of Latter-day Saints at BYU that are following the honor code. A lot of those yep. are returned missionaries, and 13% identified as non-straight. I, I, my feeling is that's accurate. Mm-hmm. The Gallup numbers and some of the other numbers I see, I just think that's a reflection of where we are, and 13%. I don't think that's... We could talk about this for a long time, but I think 13% of all age groups are probably... LGBTQ, there's just so much internalized homophobia, and mm. it's so hard to come out. I don't think this is, that's a whole nother question. Maybe they get sidetracked from your, re, from your story, but I just, that's my feeling is God is sending whatever it is, but it's consistent over the generations. I hope we'll be aware that some things that we cherish in the church can be threatening to marginalized people. If you're a married couple with kids, you read the family proclamation and go, I love this pat on the back because I'm providing and she's nurturing and we're doing all the things. But often, for instance, the family proclamation has been used as a weapon. Yeah, explain that. So let's say that someone has a beautiful walking stick and you admire it. But if somebody whacks you over the head with it, the next time you see it, you just unconsciously recoil, like just for self-protection, purely for protection. And maybe if you just see that person even. So for instance, if you're a bishop, if you're a parent, and a teenager comes out to you and is that brave and willing to trust you enough to share, you have a few things to decide. One is, do you ever want them to talk to you again? Because if you say, Well, in the family proclamation, it says, and you're not hearing them, and that's not what they need. There will be time later for that. But in too many situations, the family proclamation is brandished as a weapon, and that hurts single people in the church who would love to be married but have not had that opportunity. And so please be understanding if you're straight and you just love that and it's up on your wall and embroidered in gold thread— that some people can't have it in their house because of how it has been used against them. And it's not to say they don't don't even believe the doctrine. We just have to not use the gospel, any part of it, as a weapon on each other. But if this child comes out to you as a leader or as a parent, and you say, I love you, what does this mean to you? Tell me about this. Just get curious and ask questions. There is time later for all the how will this work out, and I just hope we can do that and not use any part of the gospel as a weapon. I love that. It's taken me a a while to sort of process the family proclamation. I believe in that doctrine. I think you do too. We have it up in our home. I remember seeing a tweet a couple of months ago just Somebody was talking about LGBTQ, and somebody tweeted back and said, well, the, f- the family proclamation answers all those questions. And I thought about that a lot, Steve, and I thought, and my guests have taught me this, you know, if you're, if you're gay and you feel like your path isn't to marry a woman, a gay man, it doesn't really answer the question of how to do that over the next six decades. It just kind of <laughs> reminds you what's not possible. Just like a yeah. single person that's never able to marry, a single straight person that's never worked out. So it can be triggering. It can remind them of what's not possible. And that's helped me. More thoughts on that, because I think I think people still want to teach. It's still going to be taught. It, there's really thoughtful Latter-day Saints that have assignments to teach the family proclamation and are aware of the nuance of having 13% potentially that are LGBTQ. <laughs> Any more pointers on how you teach it? If you were assigned as a Sunday school teacher, that's not on your script, so I'm just giving you an oddball question. <laughs> I would say... Um, What other lessons are being taught this month, and and could we trade? I don't really know. I I would pick out some things that were very moving to me, and I would would show some parts that we have to do what I was just talking about. Um, How can you talk about this part without doing an us and them or banging people over the head with it? Yeah, in fact, I think you probably answered that question before I even asked it. 
because of the way you talked about not an us versus them or banging. So that's the way I'd approach it too. So thank you. Keep sharing stuff in your letter. Well, some of the stuff I've learned from your podcast and from your incredible guests, which are not telling youth you'll be fixed in the next life, which is if they try everything else and doesn't change, then that encourages. You know, I, I keep thinking, what would it be like if there was a day when we were all in sacrament meeting and everybody who's somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum came out that day? I'm thinking there would be a lot of jaws dropping and we would make some changes that we haven't made yet. This doesn't even mean doctrinal changes. This just means the way we talk about things and the way we welcome people. Um, that if youth leaders, if they see certain words being used in a derogatory way, just pull on those reins really hard and say, that's not how it works here. We can just make it be a place where people... Four out of five LGBTQ people leave the church after high school. Why is that? They want to belong. Sometimes you're told you belong. We've heard this doctrine of belonging most recently actually put in those words by Elder Christofferson in the last general conference. But are we ready to actually do it? People are often comfortable if you fit in, like the famous Brene Brown quote, you know, we all know we've spent our lives adjusting and that's part of why it can affect you, your mental health. But you have to be able to be 100% you. That's belonging. It requires you to show up as you. I love the way you talk about some people when they step in this space think we're going to have a, a debate about doctrine, but there's a lot of things you can do as a parent, as a local leader, to talk about how to improve things without ever arguing about doctrine, which yeah. is what you're doing, and that's a pretty big sandbox of things you can do. Well, one thing is clear. We, we like to say we have all the answers, but we don't. We, we don't know very much about the next life at all. We have a few things. We're told we have enough to get us there. But there's a lot of bad information that gets circulated because we grew up hearing it, that it's a choice. If we simply read the new For the Strength of Youth, the tiny little bit that it even says on the subject, if, if we actually read the current, the latest version of the church handbook compared to what was in there 20 to 30 years ago, let's at least be up to date with the revelation and direction we have and not be recycling people's best guesses from 30 years ago that have proved to be very, very harmful. It's, it's just a fact. If four out of five people have to leave, then we haven't figured it out yet. I'm excited because I think we are figuring it out. I know so many people who have just suddenly felt like, I think I'm supposed to come out. I mean, I'm one of six people on the BYU campus, staff, faculty that I know of who, who are just out, out. That's great. I know there's 30 or 40 others who can't be, but wish they could. That's great that you're aware of them, and we honor everybody's journey in this space. Mm. I love the idea of, is there any collateral or information that exists that sort of shows this is what we used to teach and this is what we do teach? Because that would be a potential word council discussion or state oh, council yeah. discussion or Fifth Sunday, because sometimes we... As Latter-day Saints, we don't really talk about what we used to teach and just frame it up. This is what we don't teach anymore, so I want you to be clear we don't teach that. This is what we teach. Yeah, the change appears and no one says, forget the old stuff, which was the following. So uh, Megan Decker and some other people have put together some really great documents that side by side, and may have been posted in your Facebook group that's on ministering to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints in our words and stakes. Is that the right name of your group? Yeah, that's good. And we'll link to that in the show notes, and you can search Megan Decker. Yeah, I think it's been posted there, which is really eye-opening to read what once was taught and what it currently is, is taught. And I think it's okay for us to say we don't know. We get in lots of trouble where we start speculating. And here's the thing. God knows more than we know. So there is further light and knowledge on this subject. I'd love to have some of it. <laughs> I think he shares little pieces of it with people. I think we have to be loving and accepting. So when some of those people, the majority, do end up leaving, the way they leave may affect how they come back. I think of Tom Christofferson's family, including him, no matter what. And that when the time came, 
he came back. I have a good friend who's single and for 20 years had male partners, relationships, and then at a certain point, something called him back and he had a completely other experience when the bishop welcomed him in and said, oh, we need you so badly. And and he was like, well, wait, uh, let me tell you about my life. He says, I don't need to know about that. Let's talk about what you want to do. And the way he's been accepted, I'm just thrilled with. Love that. Keep sharing. You've got lots of good info, Steve. This actually is not scary for me. It's just what is. And for some reason, maybe it helps to be older. It's just not scary. I was thinking of the idea of consecration and Someone in a men's group, we were talking with each other, and he said, I realized the Lord wants me to consecrate everything, all I have, all I am, including that I'm gay. So how do I consecrate that? And I thought, that's an interesting thing to to offer to the Lord. Like, how could you use this? And I don't know, one way is to simply be out so that people know you exist and get reminded I mean, I've got little stickers, BYU, in the seven colors of the flag here on my, on my water bottle. And I have a safe space sticker up on, on my window. And there are certain buildings at BYU where people vandalize those things if they see them, which is unfortunate. I've just had really great support where I am in broadcasting. No one's ever talked about how can I consecrate that to the Lord on the podcast. That's a really wonderful Well, let me quote someone really wise on that subject. Joe Banyan is a potter in Spring City, Utah. His wife, Lee, is a painter. They are just two of the best people ever on the earth. And he did an episode in a show called Artful for BYU TV. People could look it up, where he talked about making his pots and his calling. And he chose his words really carefully. I called and actually thanked him for these words. He said, In trying to be anything other than who you really are, you cheat the world out of that potential that you have. You rob the rest of us of the beauty that would have been you. I just think there's a lot that gets buried, not just in this area, but where people hold themselves back. And if we can, can we really give ourselves completely to God? Then that includes this part of me too. And right now my feeling is... Really, it was like, well, Steve, you're not going to lose your family. You're not going to lose your job. You're not going to lose your... Just just be out because I need people to just be out and be counted. So I've got my little sort of rainbow bracelet on here. And I used to not really be into that. They're not my favorite colors. But visibility and representation, we really need that right now. So we know it's us. It's not us and them. Love that. And can I please thank my wife? for being here. I asked her if she wanted to speak, right? She's nodding her head. Joanne's an actress, and she said, if you give me a script, yes, but I don't speak extemporaneously. When I have come out to people, the second thing I say, because I know it's the question in people's mind is, um, and for Joanne and I, we're staying together. This is the best thing for us. That's not to say it's been easy or aren't we so lucky. We have each, in the course of our marriage at different times, offered each other to dissolve the marriage if that was the best thing for the other's happiness. I've offered that to her. She's offered that to me. We have never taken each other up on that offer. Now, some people should take each other up on that offer, depending how things are going. But I hope people will be supportive of spouses for all the... I don't know how many people I've come out to in person. Only three people have ever reached out to Joanne and said, how are you with this? And I think it's because I said, we're okay. You know, we're married not out of duty. We're staying married because of we want to be. But only three people have ever, and maybe it's because they don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. The three people said, how are you with this? You know, more of that should happen. Because the spouses, they're, they're like, well, what do I do with this? I am so okay with just being open. But even being here today, I, I know Joanne, to use stage terminologies, since she's a musical theater teacher, uh, she feels the spotlight swinging her way, and I don't know if she wants her close-up shot or not. <laughs> but she, she said, go for it. This needs to happen, so do it. So. Um, that's a great segment. And as I've watched your wife out of the corner of my eye, watch you. I've watched this big smile on her face as you've shared your story. 
And it just tells me how much she loves you. And there's no shame in her eyes about who you are. Um, she's smiling right now. And I just think this is a beautiful love story. And it's a beautiful marriage. And, you know, sometimes we sit on the sidelines and we hear of a mixed orientation marriage and we overanalyze it. We want it to fail or we say to living your truth, you've got to do it this way. But I wrote this in the book. One of the biggest spiritual rebukes I got in this space was thinking all mixed marriages, mixed orientation marriages would fail. And after meeting mm. wonderful couples like you, I recognized that was wrong. And they're terrific marriages. But like you, you, I think it's great for mixed orientation people to share their story, but I think everybody's got to write their own story. And you put this in the very beginning of the podcast. Don't take our story and, yeah. and weaponize it like a stick and say, this is how you do it. You should be like the Perrys. So I think it's back to this principle of self-determination, but I think it's a beautiful story. And there are people that may choose a different path, but the principles you teach help them to do that the very best way they can. More things you'd like to share, and I want to make sure we talk about the tour to Israel. Yeah, we'll get to the tour. In fact, I'd like to lead into that with something. But first, okay. there are a few times people have said, for instance, a fifth Sunday that was planned to talk about how we can make LGBTQ people comfortable in our congregations. Some have been canceled, and the reason was, well, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. And I think... What do you think of that? Is it that hard? Like, I'm sorry you might have to be uncomfortable for 20 minutes, but what about those of us who for 50 years have had to talk ourselves to walking through the doors because of what we often hear? That's discomfort. So please be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable and talk about what... Because then it won't be. It's only uncomfortable because people don't know what to do about it, or they're afraid, or they're uninformed, or what does this mean? Or they, they feel threatened, like, does this challenge my beliefs? None of those things are true. Be willing to have a little discomfort for the people who have spent a lifetime feeling that way. That's really powerful. Ben Shalati said this great thing. I think we talked about this before you started recording, which was, uh, he said, people ask me all the time what they can do to help the queer community in the church. And he said, I don't know, but the Holy Ghost knows. Ask him. So I've tried to be aware of little things that I can do here and there. And then this thing just kept popping in my mind, which is, you know how to do tours. And I thought, well, this will either fail or it'll be too awesome for words. So every year in February, I guide a, a tour to Israel for Mur Murdoch Escorted Tours. I've, as you mentioned, done this about 15 times. It's my favorite 10 days of the year is getting to go and literally walk in the footsteps of Jesus and do the teaching and have the fun and bond with a bus full of like-minded people. So I went to the tour company. I said, can I organize a private tour? You know, no one else is going to find this when they go to the website, but we'll share the link and then you can find it that way. So I just thought often people who are in the church and figuring out, can I stay? Or maybe they've stepped back a little, but their heart's still there, are torn that you have to be one identity or the other. You can be LDS or LGBT, but you can't be both, which is, is not true. Lots of us are both. But I wanted to have a tour where people could come and be 100% themselves and know they're accepted and that they're not having to choose one thing or another. And either it'll fill up and we'll, we'll go or it won't, but we've already had some good inquiries. We've just barely started telling people about it. One thing I love, because it's Jesus and following his life is that every stop we go to, we'll talk about the history of a place a little bit in Old Testament, especially the New Testament. Read or talk about the scriptures. We'll often sing a hymn that's tied to the place. And then also have time to just look around. I want to always be sure people have a little bit of thoughtful alone time if they want, either to take pictures or, or just think. Every site we go to if we talk about the story and we look at it, it's how Jesus is reaching out to the marginalized and how he's directing those who, who have been doing all the checklists perfectly to put down their checklist and do what they should have been doing, which was reaching out to the widow and the orphan. And I think that's a perfect lens that I'm looking through at this particular trip is that we'll be able to see what he taught to the people who were sort of on the edges and pushed out a little bit. And 
find a place because he is the place. This is the reason, then, listeners, I really reached out to Steve and asked him to be on the podcast. Most of the people reach out to me, but I said, Steve, would, when I became aware of the story, I said, would you, would you be willing to come on the podcast and share this with our listeners as well as your story? And I just felt a real strong spiritual prompting that there's some people that this tour would be extremely helpful for. This has never been done before, and I think you're trying to limit it to one bus, so you're on the bus. Yeah, we never do more than one bus because you want to be together. Plus, on those ancient tombs, you can't fit that many people in those little stone. <laughs> Talk about, um, so if a parent's got a kiddo they want to bring on, just talk about age range, minimum age range. Yeah. Well, we haven't really set one because kids are so different. And, <laughs> and a lady uh, just yesterday emailed and said, I'm thinking of bringing my 18-year-old daughter. She's, uh, she's a senior, and this fits in her school break. And absolutely, she's old enough. She's going to have a great experience. I mean, you could bring a 12-year-old, and hopefully they'll have a good experience. But I don't know if they have the life experience to enjoy it. But there are 12-year-olds who would. So I just hope this may be we have single people, we have married couples, we have people with bringing their soon-to-be adult children. I just think it'll be a really great group. You know, people always come home from these tours and say, they hold tour reunions all the time. We have a, a, a website for it. And they always ask me, how come I know these people in 10 days better than the members of my ward after 15 years? And it's, well, because you've spent all these days experiencing together, talking together, casually as well as in the history setting. It's just a great time. You become a family within a day or two. And that's part of what I love is I get to take people to places they've wanted to see their whole lifetime. And you get to see how this city is related to this. You learn things about the scriptures that are in your mind. Next Easter, you're going to sing the very hymn that you sang at the garden tomb, and you're going to be flood. Sorry, I'll get emotional. Uh, flooded with feelings and memories. You will never read the scriptures the same way again when you've walked in those places. And it just gives you more insight into why things happened. You don't need to go on a tour to Israel to go to heaven. Is but this but for, it's sure great. Is this for allies? So let's say somebody's Absolutely. listening that says, you know, I'm not coming with any LGBTQ. I'm not LGBTQ, but I think this would help me not only learn more about Jesus, but sort of also how to help my yeah. LGBTQ friends. Absolutely. And in fact, on the website, we say that people are going on this tour understanding that, that they will be with people at different places on their faith journey and that we will all be supportive of each other wherever we are. So I could be kind of a less active Latter-day Saint. You're not taking yeah. couple recommend no, numbers no, on the absolutely. website. I'm being a little silly. No, just a, a wide range. Obviously, this would be people who are interested in taking a New Testament scripture-based tour. Yeah. And then, of course, we put in all kinds of adventure. You float in the Dead Sea. You take the tram up to the top of Masada, the great fortress on the cliff there. We go out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, there's just there's a little adventure mix to, to keep it fun, and we keep everybody fed and get to all the sites they want to see. I love this tour, and I love the origin of this tour, this conversation with Banner. What he heard him said is, you know, how can I help? and ask the Holy Ghost, and this is what you felt impressed to do. And I've just felt, you know, whether you're in the community or an ally, that everybody's going to get a little different feeling for, and some things are more public, like a podcast or a book like I do, and some things are more private, like just being a thoughtful visiting teacher that just mm. always has an inclusive message and somehow sort of earmarks that you're safe to talk about LGBTQ because something you're wearing and just you're a safe person for people in your ward. So I love that principle that everybody needs to do what they can do in their circle of influence. And office, sometimes it's just taking your talents, not trying to be somebody else, but being you and what you do best and saying, how can I take this gift of mine, some that are more public than others, and help to create Zion in this way? Yeah. So I love that. And I, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to be on the podcast, because this is so unique that unique ideas generate other unique ideas for people mm. um, so there may be some listeners thinking right now and new thoughts are coming into their ideas because of what you just shared steve 
and I love Israel. I think part of my role to being an ally was 2008 when my wife and I went to Israel, and I think I learned more about Christ and what you talked about, how he just went to all the people that everybody said he shouldn't be going to. <laughs> and it sort of gave me a doctrinal foundation that I wanted to be more thoughtful as I left that trip. I still remember the year and the, all the places you went to. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I'm so grateful I had the chance to go, and my wife and I hope to go back again. Yeah. What you said, just little things. My wife teaches at a private school. There's uniforms, but she has a little ceramic heart pin with the, with the rainbow colors. Kids stop her in the hall. I like your pin, Mrs. Perry. And what's your speech? What do you say? You talk, and I'll say it into the microphone. She says, thank you. I'm an ally. I just want everyone to know that they're loved and I'm a safe person to talk to. I have a little a CTR pin, but it's like a little shield that says CTR, but it has the six colors behind it that's on my Sunday suit. And I don't know if I've ever worn it without having someone say, I like your pin. And it's just that subtle, subtle thing that you're an okay person that they could talk to if they needed to. What a beautiful principle. And I just think of Jesus being the master at that. Mm. I just have to think if we lived in Jesus' day and saw the way he treated people, we would feel safe opening up to him about the realities of our life. And he could walk with us, and he could help us, and he could talk with us, and he could point us to gospel principles and relationship with Heavenly Father would help us. I love that principle. And sometimes it's not always evident in the us versus them culture that we sometimes create that you pointed out earlier. Could I talk just a quick comment about identity? I don't know how Keep long we've going. been talking. We have plenty but of time. <laughs> I am a talker if you get me started. We like that. So we've heard a lot about identity, from, especially from President Nelson. Recently talked about being a child of God, child of the covenant, and being, uh, what was the third one? Christ, I think, was in there, but I'm not positive. I just yeah. did a presentation. Okay, where I had all yeah, this well, on a slide. I'm going blank because there's a microphone live in front of me. But he's talked about identity. But what he actually said is there are lots of other identities that are important to us. And for him, he named a surgeon and father and several others. He didn't say we should never use any other identities. He said we should not let other identities become our main identity. So I have quite a bit on Facebook seen people say someone comes out or uses the LGBT acronym, and people say, are there no Christians here? There's only one identity. And it's like they want to police, again, using the gospel and President Nelson's teachings as a weapon. They're saying, you should stop saying that there are gay people, or these are labels we don't use. Well, if we're going to do that, we're going to, shall we not have labels and talk about single people and married people and young men and young women and whatever it might be? The point is, it is part of my identity, and I don't want it changed because I wouldn't be me. And there are gifts I have that I think are attached to that. And when I get to the next life, I am hoping there is no big change machine. This is not doctrine now. This is Gospel of Steve, to be clear. Our Father in Heaven knows everything. Our Savior knows everything and what it's like to feel and to even be us. So when we get to the next life, my personal hope is there's no machine to come and, you know, take out the four square inches in my heart that is my orientation and pop something else in and become someone else. We will be able to know as we are known, and with perfect knowledge of each other, we will just expand our understanding. I'm going to understand what it's like to be straight. And surprise, straight people, you're going to understand what it's like to not be. And then we all get to also understand what it's like to have been paralyzed for decades and decades. And we get to understand having been in a, we will just get to understand each other's hearts. And to me, that's just expansion and it's not changing someone or something that's unacceptable for heaven. That was really, I keep saying this, but that was really a wonderful segment. I was stunned the first time somebody told me they didn't want this to not be different in the next life. I thought everybody would press the magic red button around my yellow, uh, around my red table, round table, <laughs> the I want to be straight button. And I was, it stunned me when a few people started to share just what you shared. 
And then they did what you did. They said, this is all my talents, my abilities or gifts are wrapped around this, but no one's ever talked about this four inch part of my heart being cut out and something else replaced. I mean, there's some people that want to press the button and be straight. And I think we both give them permission if that's their hope. Mm-hmm. We want them to have hope in the path that they want to have hope in. But I love what you just said and the de-shaming that is and the feeling that God created you and this is a good thing. And you don't, it doesn't change our doctrine or policy, but it yeah. just puts you on the same moral footing as straight people. And then I love where you said we're all going to feel and understand if our glory, if our we know our you know, as we eternally progress, I think we need to have those feelings. Um, we need to have that understanding of how a paralyzed person feels, how people of different sexual orientations. But then I thought, if we're going to grow, we need to learn to be uncomfortable on Fifth Sundays right now. Because <laughs> if we're going to do the things you just talked about, part of growth is to be on churches and a play. I know sometimes we want to go to church and the world's so divisive. We want to just be there where there's no uncomfortableness but that's part of growth and that's part of why we should come to church is to grow and learn creating zion yeah if we're never uncomfortable we're not we're not going anywhere yeah so i love that and i just i hope we'd learn to talk about this subject in fifth sundays we're doing that but sometimes as you know and people in your circle know those are getting canceled or people are uncomfortable or somebody will be come to talk to a an active latter-day saint who's gay will come to talk to a bishops training and not all the bishops will show up because you've heard these stories because mm-hmm. they're uncomfortable around being a gay Latter-day Saint and wow I think of the the people in that ward that could have been helped by that bishop showing up to that that training mm. we could talk a lot about that but I just uncomfortableness is a path to grow and, and what I presented as just some of my thoughts I'm not calling doctrine I am pretty sure that whatever the Lord has in store I'm going to be say, all right, great, just because I, I just have that trust that we're going to be happy with how things are. Any more thoughts that come to your mind, Steve? You've got so many ongoing nuggets, I don't want to end before <laughs> there's another nugget coming. I have been so lucky to not feel that I was bad or, or wrongly made, even when I knew it was not safe to share that with anyone. I really want people to be able to get past that. I don't think we can really have a good relationship with God if we're having shame. And so we cannot put that barrier between people and God because that's a feeling that is not of God. And when people are lost in that, they sometimes can't access what's coming from God, I think. Um, my favorite term is, I, I, if I could, I would read Mosiah chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 to you right now, all of it. King Benjamin is dying with his son Mosiah. He calls all the people together, and he says at the very beginning of this whole section, and I'm going to give the people a name by which they will be called. And you read these next five chapters, and you're going, where's this? What's the name? Are they going to be the anti-Benjamin? Some things you, you don't know until finally he shares essentially the gospel and uh, Christ will be born of Mary in Jerusalem. He's, he shares all this, these things, and then the, the people want his atonement to apply to them. And he says, and now in, in chapter 5, you shall be called the children of Christ, because that's what they wanted was to be attached to him and his atonement. And so if I could say anything, if you can connect with Jesus Christ, because that's what I want to be like is those people in chapter 5 with King Benjamin. I love that. That's a great closing segment. Unless there's more stuff you'd like to share. No, we can end with Jesus, and that's the best place. Um, More Jesus is a great thing, and um, I'm just grateful for Steve, somebody I've really admired. I'm grateful to hear more of his story and the principles that he shares. I love this coming into Jesus, and if you're a young queer Latter-day Saint, that would be my advice is just what Steve's been sharing. Build your relationship with your heavenly parents, their love for you and your relationship with Christ, and And, yeah, I really believe the church can help you do that, but the church is a means to that. And that's the goal is to build that solid relationship as you're working your way forward, especially if you're younger and sort of before these forks in the road that you're going to eventually face about the different paths you can take. But make those decisions based on faith and being your very personal best, which I think you've done a great job. 
um, a lot of that very much on your own without any examples or voices of support. Um, and I'm glad that you help us understand that there's more of that for younger people and people at BYU and um, people that are out at church and how helpful that is for all of us as we become Zion. Richard, thank you. And in behalf of all the people who listen, I mean, one of the reasons this has actually been pretty easy for me to say, I get, I'm just going to be open, is hearing people being open and thinking, I like these people. These are cool people. Maybe I'm okay too. And I'm hoping people hear that. You, you probably will never know in this life, lives you've saved. Uh, so thank you for what you do. Thank you. And thank you listeners for listening and sharing and helping us build Zion together. This is Stephen Cap Perry, his wife Joanne, who's with him, um, smiling a lot as we share this beautiful love story on an, um, signing off another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And please look in our show notes for more information about this tour to Israel in March of 2023.